You know what's adorable? Nazis. Not quite as adorable as Scarlett Johansson's cheekbones, but pretty close. And as adorable as we all universally agree Nazis to be, none were more so than that ragtag group of lovable scamps, the handjobs. What? That's not what the HJ stands for? Well, they're Nazis, so I think we kind of already know what they stand for. If you have no sense of irony and take no joy in satire, this intro may have already lost you. And if so, it is possible that today's film might not be your cup of tea either. And that's cool. A story about a sweet, doe-eyed little kid with a Looney Tunes version of Adolf Hitler as an imaginary best friend walks a line between Horatian genius and dangerously tasteless. But you, the viewer, get to decide for yourself how fine or how broad that line is. What your personal line looks like will invariably determine how well this film walks it, because the film itself isn't terribly careful with its missteps. Tonal shifts from hilarious to horrific and tender to tragic, a cast of phenomenally skilled comedic actors that are all given a generous license to bring their own style to the performance, and a story arc that necessitates our female lead giving up almost all of her agency, relying instead on the kindness of actual Nazis, there is a lot going on with this movie that could go drastically awry at any moment. It's like watching a gin-soaked W.C. Fields juggle a chainsaw, a baby, three watermelons, and a stick of dynamite. And we, the audience, can either shout our objections that he should not be doing that, or sit back and marvel that goddamn he's actually doing it pretty well whether he should be or not. But with six Oscar nominations and one win, it must have hit more than it missed with most people. So whether this film worked for you or not, let's put aside our differences and focus on the things we agree on. Sam Rockwell is a national treasure, handjobs are awesome, Nazis are gross, it's nice to see Scarlett Johansson play an actual Aryan for once, and at the end of a long day we could all use a cuddle. As we discuss writer-director Taika Waititi's 2019 zany take on war through a child's eyes, Jojo Rabbit. Call it in. It's Danger Close. Welcome to Danger Close, the war film podcast. I'm your host, Dan, and I'm here today with my co-host, Katie. And Liam. And today we are doing our first of many audience poll selected films. So we each threw a couple of uh, films at the wall and then voted on four. Uh, out of the list that we keep, that keeps track of how many times people have requested a film. And then we let the audience vote. And while Mike D'Angelo had a very well thought out and persistent propaganda campaign for the Dam Busters, and he did a damn good job. He like tripled the votes for that film. Was that a pun? What a, I don't even. He, he did a damn good job. <laughs> he did do a damn good job. <laughs> he did a damn busting good job. He did. I was like, pun? <laughs> obviously, obviously not, because I didn't even realize that I did it. Anyways. If you read his comments in our Facebook group, which you can go to at uh, – if you just type in Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group, you'll find it. Um, he gave a great synopsis of the film, and it's definitely on the list, and I'm definitely excited to do that one. But today, Jojo Rabbit 
Taika Waititi's excellent film was the winner. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And Katie is here with our mission briefing. Welcome, listeners. So in 2010, well before he was a Marvel director, Taika Waititi read Caging Skies by Christine Lunens. And I really hope I pronounced that correctly. If not, my apologies. And after he read it, he immediately began working on a screenplay and talked to the author and got the go-ahead. It took him roughly eight years, and he completed several very popular projects in between both film and TV in between the time when he started writing the script and when it actually got made. The original novel is entirely dramatic, and YTT chose to inject his personal comedic style into the script to make it more accessible and less like other war films about the period. Jojo, the main character, is a 10-year-old boy who is devoted to the Nazi cause, and he's very excited to join the Hitler Youth. He also happens to have Hitler for an imaginary best friend, played to great effect by YTT himself. Unbeknownst to Jojo, his mother Rosie is in the resistance and has been hiding a teenage Jewish girl in their house. And it doesn't take long before Jojo finds her, and she swears him to secrecy, lest his mother be killed by the regime. The film takes place in Berlin during the last few months of the war, and while it is mostly comedy, it also packs a few emotional punches that most dramas about the period are never able to achieve. YTT aimed to create something different than the usual war film, and all in all, I would say he succeeded admirably. Overall, the criticism was positive, but the film was considered divisive, particularly because it makes Jojo an incredibly sympathetic character and some felt that the comedic nature of the film detracted from its message. But, in an unexpected twist, it captured the 2020 Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, something that was considered totally unlikely in the critic world. It was a box office success with about $90 million, but it was considered a small film. The studio was pretty hesitant about how they were going to promote this, and they were really unsure about how the general public was going to see this, considering... You know, there's an imaginary Hitler in it, who's a best friend. (laughs) And so they didn't do the best job at advertising it. So while this was a big, big hit in the critic circles, I'm wondering, where did you guys hear about it? And had you seen it before we watched it for the show? So uh, I don't remember... I think I heard some buzz about a YTT film, but maybe by the time the Oscars were coming around, I was sort of hearing about it, hearing about who the nominees or who was being considered for that year. Um, so in January or something like that, I was hearing about it. And despite being a fan of YTT's, mostly knowing him from what we do in the shadows, the original film which is hilarious for anyone who hasn't seen it. Jermaine Clement from uh, Flight of the Concords, who I also love. And Taika Waititi plays a main role in that. And I think he he directed – they probably took some turns. It's probably a mix in the staff. But anyways, they did that, then made it into a TV show. And so I knew Waititi from that. And then um, my next encounter with him was in The Mandalorian, um, which – yeah, he was involved mostly towards the end of season one. And I just remember being blown away by the stuff he did and being like, whoa, this is a guy to pay attention to. And he directed the first episode, in addition to being, I 
NIG88, I think it is. Oof, Star Wars fans are going to skewer me. That was unpleasant. I'm sorry you had to see that. I've gotten to know YTT and really love his work, but I didn't know much about this when it was out. I saw it once kind of casually and didn't even finish it because, you know, party went elsewhere and, and whatever. I can't remember. Um, the second time I watched it with my girlfriend who loves this film and was very excited we were doing it uh, more recently. And I really liked it, but I still like... I kind of felt like I wasn't connecting with it in the same way that she was. She felt like she just had all these thoughts about, you know, compassion and about the mother character and like all this deep stuff that I just like wasn't ready to talk about and make that connection. And when I rewatched it yesterday for this recording, that's when on my third viewing, it seemed or second and a half viewing, it seemed to be falling into place. I was catching all these subtle performances, things I hadn't seen before. So we'll talk about all of that, but. This was my strongest and best impression of the film by far, and I really, really enjoyed this viewing, so I'm excited to talk about it. Liam? Well, I am a bit of a Taika Waititi Johnny-come-lately. I really didn't know who he was until uh, Thor Ragnarok. Fantastic film. Yeah, I love it. I love it to death. But as soon as I saw that, I was like on board. I was like fucking Taika Waititi. Yeah, absolutely. I saw a trailer for this on YouTube months ahead of it coming out. And I was like, I need to see that movie. I I have had a lifelong burning passion for good satire and this looked to be right up my alley so uh yeah i couldn't wait to see it i think i saw it opening weekend in the theater nice nice way to support the filmmaker so yeah i i saw it i want to say opening weekend i think it didn't come to pittsburgh right away um it it, we don't always get things in the first release here but because you're like a second tier third tier city you know to second tier. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I'm not. You're not going to get me on recording saying that about Pittsburgh. I just see you're not wearing any Pittsburgh gear today. So I just felt like maybe your Pittsburgh patriotism was somehow waning. No, it wasn't. Oof. Way to call him out. <laughs> Jeez. And then I went back like three days later and saw it again. Just a, a fantastic movie. Uh, it, I liked it as much as I thought I would. I might've seen this one three times in the theater. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I mean, the, in the pandemic, the only thing I've really missed has been going to the movies because I like to do that. And, and I go see a movie multiple times if I like it and I'll bring other people with me if I can. But yeah, I love this movie. It was fantastic. Uh, and I have to say, I didn't know that uh, it was a bit of a surprise win for best adapted screenplay because I called that shit from like a mile away. Like that was my number one pick. <laughs> that was my, what's the opposite of a dark horse, the front runner, like just whatever, whatever the, the non dark horse was. I was like, yeah, this one's going to, to be clear, the nominees that year were Joker, the Irishman, Jojo rabbit, little women, and the two posts. Yeah, there's no fucking contest there. There's no contest whatsoever. Like most of those movies suck. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and their screenplays weren't that good. Damn, brutal. Wow. I guess we can't even. We don't even have time to respond to that if we want to be on track no. with this episode. No, so we're just gonna have to let that one just slide. 
Liam's learning how to get his opinion out there uncontested because he knows that it's like, this is too big a can of worms to open. If I say this, they won't even respond. Nobody yeah. will I'm even know. You. I'm on to you, Liam. <laughs> don't, uh, <laughs> don't even ask me about Joker. Me either. I'm assuming that uh, adapted screenplay just means that it was based off some other original written work. Yeah, uh, uh, some other published material. There's two different screenplay awards. There's original, best original screenplay, which means the person wrote it, or there's best adapted, which means they adapted it from something. So that could mean a book. previous film, a play, it could be any of that stuff. Yeah, the, the Academy has arcane guidelines for it, but generally for the for people like us, if it's adapted, if it's been in existence before, then it's considered an adapted screenplay. Makes sense. So this is from the novel. And I wanted to highlight right away before I forget that the big addition was the Hitler character. So the imaginary friend was not in the book. No, but the author did like it. <laughs> um, she felt that it was she felt that it was an appropriate um addition to the film and she felt that the adaptation um was in the same spirit of the novel yeah i find that with the so far what i'm noticing reading trivia about ytt is that um not unlike i mean whatever i'm a trivia nerd so like you guys i like to read about what artists felt about their performance or their work or what kind of mindset were they going into how did they prepare i love watching behind the scenes stuff so it's no surprise that i like this however YTTs just seem like just dipped in gold. I remember that his description of his vampire character, which I can never remember his name. Is it Tiago? I think he's Tiago in uh, the original film, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. He basically said that he modeled because his character is a 1700s kind of fruity vampire, but fruity in the sense that he's like, a fop would be the term what, for what that kind that? of person in the 1700s. A fop is what we would consider uh, generally like an effeminate, um, precise, dainty Into poetry man. and art and higher art. And arts. they're um, typically part of the aristocracy or they're part of the But court. there's like a, a foolish element to them. Like nobody says fop and it's like, why, thank you. You know, it's. Yeah, no. I don't want fop, right. god damn it. I'm a dapper Dan man. And it it also seems to be effeminate without being connected to sexuality whatsoever, meaning yeah, I imagine no. that type of character could be gay or straight or whatever, but in Waititi's case, his character is straight, ostensibly. I mean, like, he likes women victims as the vampire and stuff. He's just, like, really dainty and, you know, prances around and-, and He's prissy. He's prissy, almost the exactly. Word Especially in that scene where all the blood is coming oh, out. Oh, yes. And he's, like, <laughs> trying to- <laughs> Trying to get it cleaned up. God, so great. Um, anyways, he he based his performance on his mother, is what he said, and that's just so great. That's perfect, you know, because like what a what a yeah. So that was his comment about that. And then in terms of his performance of Hitler here, which he was asked about, because obviously he wrote that in, so all the lines were original. Um, and basically, he was asked, you know, uh, what kind of research did you do on Hitler? And YTT said he did no research about Hitler saying, quote, that he is a fucking cunt. <laughs> <laughs> so, and he's from New Zealand, folks. Yeah, so that's, that's, that 
word is very different there than it is in it America. Is, same thing with uh, with the British and yeah, like yeah. It's- and I'm not going to pretend to be able to do a uh, Kiwi accent, so you'll have to take my profane quote in context. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so his his idea was, first of all, that Hitler was an asshole, and so he doesn't deserve to be researched, which, of course, like, from a historical perspective doesn't work, but for this type of setting, it's perfect, because he's not playing Hitler, he's playing a 10-year-old Hitler youth child's imaginary conception of Hitler. And so that's perfect because you only need to know so much about the history in order to do that. You really need to be more familiar with what what does this child probably know about Hitler as opposed to how was Hitler in real life. And then we'll talk later about how they mix in historical events as uniform changes, things like that. Um, but I thought it was great to get the background perspective on that where he actually felt – that detaching himself from the real person would make a funnier performance. And indeed it does because he's this like buffoon, but it's also played so subtly in his facial, um, his, the faces he makes while he's acting and hand gestures and stuff he's doing in the background that again, I didn't really catch fully until this viewing, but God, I couldn't, he's just like amazing every time he's on screen as Hitler. It's so hilarious. So I was actively writing criticism at the time, and I actually got to see this at the Minneapolis International Film Festival, which is very, very tiny. But this was the opening film, and I can't tell you, I was so excited. I am a, I hate this term, but like, I am a Taika Waititi stan. Like, I will watch anything he makes. I've seen everything he's ever made, and it, All of it is fantastic, and I love his sensibilities and all of that. So when I found out this is what he was making, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be amazing. And then I watched it, and, like, I laughed, I cried, I thought a lot about it, and then I've seen it probably four or five times. I show it to people regularly because I just think it's so moving and powerful. And the comedy in it is pure YTT. All of that the ability to satirically blend um, very difficult topics and very difficult ideas with this absurdist comedy all said with a very straight face is how the vast majority of his films are. I mean, for me personally, I think hunt for the wilder people is my personal favorite of his. And that's the one that launched him into the career he has now. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? it also deals with a young child dealing with a little loss. And I think this, I don't think anybody else could have pulled this off because to be clear, Taika Waititi is, um, was born to a Maori dad and a Jewish mother. And he is Jewish as in he's a practicing Jew is my understanding. So he, um, was very conscientious about how he was doing this. This wasn't something that he was coming from the outside and just tossing it off. He thought very carefully about it and worked very hard with both his cast and his crew to make it, a very natural set. Like all of the actors were really given a free reign to kind of add their own spin on their performances. And if you've seen Thor Ragnarok, you've seen the massive difference that he can make in a direction between if you watch the original or the first two Thor movies and how Chris Hemsworth is in those versus how he is in Thor Ragnarok. Like a lot of that isn't just because of YTT, it's because of their relationship. And so this is such a touchy difficult thing to do that it's like it's hard to walk that line and he didn't walk that line for everyone this was a 
it was controversial for a lot of different groups. Like there were some Jewish critics who loved it, thought it was amazing. And there were some who was like, this is, this is terrible and it doesn't work for me at all. So I think it's a film that is very much either you go in and you watch it and you love it or you go in and you watch it and it does nothing for you. And I was curious to hear that perspective since, um, yeah, I don't have any Jewish family that I'm that I'm closer that I know about. And I don't think you guys do either. So I was like, oh man, I wish almost wish we could have a Jewish person on the show to interview to just get their opinion. So I'm glad that Waititi fills that role because at least we can kind of get that through him. Obviously, he must have had lots of conversations with that community where he's from and talked to friends, etc. Um, and I think it's a bold move. It, it it takes a little bit of courage to do something like that where you're going to be playing with things that are touchy and especially nowadays, you know, PC culture can skirt into the extreme sometimes where it can really stifle what directions art can go. And I think some people are afraid of like, am I going to get canceled? Is this, you know, whatever. And so that's just the thing that's in the zeitgeist right now. And I think uh, Roberto Benigni, who is a Excellent, excellent Italian comedian and got more famous in the U.S. in the last 20 years. I'm sorry. Before we go on, I just need you to 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 say Roberto Benigni's name again for me. Roberto Benigni. You said it like way more Italian that first time. It was like, <laughs> oh. I didn't even know who the fuck you were talking about for <laughs> a second. Roberto Benigni, that's his name. Ah, fragile. It must be Italian. <laughs> How many R's are in that? Roberto. They're like, Seven. It starts it's with like four. Ro- Roberto Benigni. <laughs> no, it's, it's one R. <laughs> Roberto Benigni. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. There are two R's in Roberto. I'm an idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and he's famous. So he's uh, so he's from Tuscany or he's from Florence. So he's a Florentine. Mm. And f- oh. Florentines speak I in a very- I love their pasta. <laughs> they speak in a very specific way. Coca-Cola- which is a Coke, Coca-Cola in Italian, becomes ho-ha-hola. They don't really pronounce oh, wow. their hard Cs. They're kind of Hs. So that's like a very distinctive thing where if you hear someone speaking in Italian like that, you know they're from Florence. And um, Weird. Right. And no, I'm just joking. That's awesome. <laughs> Dante, of course, uh, Dante Alighieri, the most famous bard and Dante writer. Alighieri? Yeah, the, the, guy? the most famous Florent, Florentine. Florentine, Florentine. Yeah, the the most famous Florentine. Florentine I would agree with it's that Dante. statement. It's between him and <laughs> mm-hmm. Ma- him and Machiavelli, probably. Or, or, uh, yeah, there, there's yeah. a few. There, on- there's a few rich, famous uh, Florentines, but um, yeah. yeah, Dante, of course, wrote the Divine Comedy, and uh, Benigni every year, I think goes to I forget which famous square in Florence and recites part of the divine comedy from memory. I can't remember if it's in Fano Paradiso or whatever it is. And so people gather around and he's like, obviously he's a huge celebrity in Italy. Also, if you've never seen YouTube videos of him uh winning the Oscar for La Vita Bella and like he's like five foot I still five, have probably. nightmares about that. Jim him just <laughs> jumping over the seats to get to the stage because he's like he's really like a child. Like that's really how he is. He just has the excitement level of like an eight-year-old. Um he also when he met the Pope, Pope Pope John Paul John JP two. Yeah, JP two. Pope John Paul II <laughs> back in the nineties, uh before he passed. 
when he met him, the first thing he did was wrap his hands around the back of the Pope's neck and jump into his lap, like making this 87-year-old man or however he was, like literally pick him up in his arms. And he was like kissing him on the face all over because he was so excited to meet the Pope. Like you can't fake that shit. He's just a unique It's the most character. Italian thing I've ever heard. It's pretty goddamn Italian. <laughs> I'm, I'm still it. mad at him for beating uh, Edward Norton for best actor that year myself, but that's that's was that American History X? Yes, it oh, was. Oh, nice, man. Tough competition so, there, yeah. So, so I, I'm still mad about it. This is a terrible mistake because I used up all my English. You're holding a grudge. I don't, I do that. I don't let things go very easily. Good to know. Good to know. There are myriad problems I have with Roberto Benigni beating Edward <laughs> Norton for best actor for American History X. When he came out with uh, La Vita Bella, Life is Beautiful, which is a film about a father and a son in a concentration camp. And he's kind of like trying to get his son through this experience using comedy. He's always like making jokes. He's a very natural and goofy kind of person. And obviously he plays a Jewish person in the film, which I don't, I don't know about his personal background. I don't know if he has Jewish family, but that response was really mixed. And I think there's a certain, um, at least I believe that there's a certain uh, group within the Jewish community that just doesn't look kindly upon things like the Holocaust being talked about with any kind of comedic context. It's possible, again, I'm conjecture here, but I'm guessing that some of those people may just feel that this issue is so serious um, that it can only be depicted in a dramatic, serious, you know, dramatic film or in a documentary, you know, because we need to remember what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And if that's someone's opinion, I respect it. That's totally okay to have that opinion, obviously. Um, but I think that people who have an inclination towards comedy like Waititi, and that is a lot of their skill in writing, they want to use their creativity even to talk about controversial issues like that. And so, yeah, it, it's got to be a really difficult thing to do. And who knows how many versions of that character ended up on the cutting room floor, or how many times he had to rewrite it. There's a reason probably that – it's probably part of the reason he worked on the script for a long time. But yeah, I think – that, and that makes – something like this that much more interesting and fascinating and layered because you read between the lines and look at the historical background of some of the decisions he made with Hitler, like when he gets angry and his tone of voice changes and he rants like he's giving a rally speech, but talking about something in between him and Jojo, I can't even remember the topics right now. That is the most common audio that we have in our minds of Hitler, so much so that people who haven't been to Germany or have never really like spoken in German with someone or heard it get this association that German is like loud and harsh and quick and snappy because some people are mostly familiar with like Hitler's 1930s and 40s, 20s through the 40s, like rallies in German. Um, and of course, if you know anyone who's German, like people don't necessarily talk like that. Um, that's just a no. very specific style. Um, and so it's cool to see Waititi work those things in where even though he maybe decided to not do research and wasn't trying to play, again, a historically accurate version of Hitler because it's a child's version of Hitler – it's interesting to see those things, to see the costume changes, to see, uh, you know, his head's bleeding at the end for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, just 
really well done and subtle choices. I also find the the famous vegetarian eating a unicorn head at the table is just like the epitome of absurd on like several levels that just like I cracked up watching that scene. And, and you know, he's so like into it and smiling and like just digging into this super fake looking meat unicorn, you know, <laughs> which is like the last thing Hitler would ever eat uh, for obvious reasons. You know, it's funny that that there is such a, a schism about this movie to a certain extent, because in America, so much comedy is steeped in uh, American Jewish identity from yeah. like the marvelous Mrs. Maisel back to like pre Mel Brooks. The Smothers uh, Brothers. The Smothers Brothers. I didn't know they were Jewish. Huh. That's. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. They look as waspish as you can get, but you know, that's that just might have been there. Jewish people and Canadians. They're everywhere and you never know who's who. You never I, even I always know. find out some new Canadian actor and I'm like, oh, he's from Canada. I didn't know. <laughs> it's like Belgians. But, you know, when. But especially with somebody like Mel Brooks, I don't know how you can get mad at Springtime for Hitler. You know, that's just comic gold when that like and that was one of his first movies um, with the producers might have been his first. It was close to it. And I, mean, he, it I think he won a uh, best original screenplay for it at the Oscars, uh, if my memory is serving me correctly. Um, but it's, you know, and his his thing was there is absolutely no chance that I'm not going to make fun of Nazis every single moment that I get a that I get the opportunity. I'm going to, these are people that just need to be blasted over and over and over again with all of the derision that I can muster. Uh, and I viewed this as much more as being in that kind of vein. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. I'm not, I never tell somebody when they're wrong to be offended or that they're wrong to be offended. That's it. it the that is 100% the purview of the offended person but i don't think that you can see like any sort of malicious intent behind this movie or behind the producers or something like that when it you know that it's easy to see that they're just taking a different tack than you would prefer you know i think a lot of the criticism was more because and again, I didn't I didn't share this criticism because the film really works for me. I think the one thing about YTT's comedy is that it can be off-putting if you are not familiar with it. And there's a certain type of New Zealand comedy for those of you who've watched Flight of the Concords and what we do in the shadows and that type of thing. Okay, band meeting. Murray, present. Brett, present. Jermaine, Present. Oh, I haven't got time for your time wasting. They have a very dry sense of humor, and everything is said with a very straight face, and all of that. So, I, I think some folks, it did not come across to them. It's an offspring of British humor, certainly more than American humor, and I think you feel that. And when people don't get dry British humor, that's okay. I get it. I'm like, yeah, you know, if if you absolutely cannot handle the British office as opposed to the American office. Often it's because of that just dry deadpan, like British delivery where you're like, is this supposed to be funny? I don't get it. Like it takes a while to get used to it. And, and New Zealand comedy from what I've seen is the same in a different way. It does the same thing. Yep. 
it definitely is tinged with the more, especially for those of them who are Maori, it definitely, I think, also plays back into their own culture from that. Um, at least from what I've seen, I've, oddly enough, watch a lot of New Zealand comedy because I think it's all great. It's a really super bizarre, <laughs> tiny thing, but I've seen so many of them. It's ridiculous. But I think the big, you know, there were kind of two prongs that I saw critic criticism coming from the fact that Jojo is an incredibly sympathetic character and he's a Nazi. And I mean, the film makes no bones about the fact that he's a Nazi. He writes a book in the course of it describing how to tell you know, how to tell a Jew apart from quote unquote normal people. Right. I think and I think we're talking about Yuhu Jew. That isn't that the name of the episode? Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's what it's called. So, you know, he obviously has these very wrong and negative views of the world in general and especially Jewish folks. Um so I think a lot of folks didn't feel like he sent a strong enough message that Jojo's beliefs were wrong. For me, I think he's very clear about that. I, for me, like having Rosie, his mother, be the one who is constantly and gently pushing back, which as a mother myself, you know that if you tell your kids, like, you're wrong and this is bad, they nope, that's not going to work. They're just going to dig deeper into it. Well, so she calls him Shitler at one point. Come on, Schittler. His, yeah. She does this very, like, hard and roundabout way of trying to get him to see why he's wrong without alienating him. So I think that didn't strike well with a lot of people, that it wasn't just a clear-cut condemnation. And the other prong was the comedy in general. I would say the the only issue that I found, and it's and it's actually more from, like, a patriarchy sort of standpoint where Elsa's character mostly exists to show Jojo that Jews are people. And yes. in, in a lot of, you know, uh, not quite the green book criticism where no. it's like, don't even go there. It, I hate that. Movie. Yeah, it's a terrible movie, but like the idea that, you know, in green book, you have a, you have a, a racist white guy who gets taught the right way by the black guy. A well-educated uh, virtuoso pianist who happens to be black and gay in the, what, 50s? In the mm -hmm. 1950s? Uh, traveling through the South on a, on, a, on a musical tour. And he is the supporting character in, that, in his own movie. Because the racist white guy has to learn lessons about being a good person. So it's not anywhere near that same. Uh, it, it, it's not that same level of, of cringiness, but it's, it, there is, there's a little in my mind, there's like a little, there's a little hint of it in not so much that it's trying to do that, but that it's, it, it's, it's not that far off. It's inadvertently doing it almost. Right. To the surprise of no one, I'm going to disagree pretty hard here. Um, I Let's hear it. <laughs> um, I don't think that's an apt comparison at all because I think the entire lens that this film 
is the story is told through with a couple of exceptions of moments where like Rosie is alone with Elsa and is having her own moments, which by the way, those moments like pass the Bechdel test. Not that like I use the Bechdel test. I was going to say, yeah, to decide whether a movie is good or not, but it's still a good gauge on whether a movie's feminist or whether it's treating women as their own real characters, or are they just a stand in for something else? Or are they just like representing women, you know? And of course, which for those, those who don't know, the Bechdel test means that two women in a movie are talking to each other about something that has nothing to do with a man. Thank you, Katie. Um, and of course, that scene, I think, at least one scene that I can remember is when they're talking about what it means to be a woman, which is really beautifully written dialogue, actually. It's a fantastic scene. I love that scene. Yeah. And so it's it's a moment of – it's not about – like, to me, that's not about – humanizing this Jewish girl, at least not to the audience. The moments where Jojo is included, um, there are certainly moments where he's being taught that, look, Jewish people are just like you and they don't have horns. They don't fly around. Like that's a bunch of garbage propaganda. And, you know, Jojo has to learn from ostensibly his first experience or his first recent experience with a Jewish person it's like, oh, right, this person's just scared and hiding, but she's just a little girl and she could easily be my sister, which is obviously part of the plot. Um, right. Although the 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 fact that it's not the story of how this Jewish girl in hiding survived the war. But that's because this isn't her story. Right. Right. This, it, we're, we're saying the same thing, but like it's – Yeah. It's – But in the Green Book, it's like the character is being treated – the wrong way. Like they could have easily done the green book and still had the same interact. I haven't seen it, but I understand what you're talking about. Like they still could have had the same interaction between um, the white character and the black character, but the story be told from the black character's perspective with him as the protagonist, which is what Jojo rabbit does for the most part. Again, the Hitler caricature, the filter through which he's seen everything is not just a 10-year-old Nazi youth who's being filled with propaganda at every turn, but it's also a sort of like weaker, more frail 10-year-old kid who's trying to fit in with his friends and just like not stick out. And the bunny scene is a big part of that, which I really empathize with him in that scene because I was like, I couldn't kill that bunny like that. Are you kidding me? Like, that's brutal. I think the film takes pains to show that Jojo – is not like he, he is not the ideal Aryan boy, but he's trying to be right. Exactly, like, that's he's all trying he knows. to be because he feels like he should be that person. And and I think that every scene that has Elsa or his mother Rosie in it, those two women have like full agency over their character. Even though Elsa, of course, doesn't have a lot of agency because she's hiding in this house. They do, but it also does pass the sexy le- the sexy lamp test. Which I actually like better than the Bechdel test, which is if uh, if you can take a female character out of a scene and replace it with the leg lamp from a Christmas story and the scene doesn't actually change at all, then it's a problem. Don't get me wrong. This movie, I think, is a is a, a, a much more feminist movie than a man can reasonably be expected to make, honestly. And I'll, I'll remind you, Mr. Frightpub, that 
her introduction to Jojo is basically shot like a scene in a horror film. It and is. I thought that was freaking great. Because if you again, didn't bring it up, I was going to. Yeah, because they're trying to show, again, his whole perspective that this, like, concept of a quote-unquote Jew is this, like, mythical sort of bad thing that impersonates, like, every scary scary thing a 10-year-old could ever think of, right? It's this, like, monster in the dark or whatever, which is utterly ridiculous, but certainly the way a lot of 10-year-olds would view Jewish people at that time in Germany. So, yeah, I I just – I don't know. I just don't see any missteps or things that are disrespectful about the lenses and the angles and the filters that they decided to go with because I just don't ever see any character disrespected or minimized or put to the back burner. Like every scene Elsa is in, she's a significant part of that scene and her internal mechanisms and her worries and her hopes and her fears and who knows what – Aside from Nathan, who else? Like her parents, other family that has probably been killed recently that she's thinking about. I mean, I could think back to it's the stabbing scene where Jojo comes in to kill her or, you know, ostensibly to kill her. And when he fails and she watches him slink away and then fall down and, you know, start crying because his spoiler alert, his mother has died at that point. Um, that actress Thomasine McKenzie. Thank you. Yeah, the the you can see her face go from like fear and anger to compassion. And for a young actor, she did such a great job with that. Um and again, same with Rosie. You see again, we'll talk about all these scenes more, but anyways, just to say I really didn't see any one-dimensional use of any of those other characters. No, and I'm not saying that it's a one-dimensional use of any of the characters. It's, it's the fact that the, it's, it's something that's inherent or intrinsic in the story that because it's a story of being told from the uh, perspective of the male who is a Nazi and he has to learn to be a better person from the first Jewish person that he meets. It's, there's something slightly problematic about that paradigm and storytelling because it's so often done as the person who is who has to do the learning from the other person like the onus is on the other person to teach this person not to be a shitty uh, a shitty human being um and i think that that happens people feel that responsibility so much just in their everyday dealings and it is a a kind of a classic story arc that's been done so many times that i think that's where some of those complaints came from yeah and i think this I think this subverts that story because you see the two of them grow close. It's not that she's a manic pixie dream girl where, uh, where I think that trope really becomes problematic. Um, She's not a manic pixie dream girl. She's not, she doesn't just exist to fix Jojo. Like the two of them come to rely on each other like very shortly after Rosie. I mean, even a little before Rosie dies, they are doing their best to allow both of these characters to grow together and to feel almost responsible for each other by the end, especially in the scene where in that end scene where the Gestapo has come and they are looking for her and all of that. Like that's the point when we see that the two of them have become 
reliant on each other as opposed to she's his caretaker or fixing him. And I think that's one of the strengths of the script is that it takes that very, very common idea and just flips it around on its head and confronts it head on. I think the movie really changes dramatically over the course of the film. Like it starts out so hopeful and bright. And a lot of that is represented by YTT's Hitler, you know, like, in the beginning, he's very chipper and excited and very supportive of Jojo because he's going off to um, join the Hitler Youth. Uh, yeah, he's doing the Hitler Youth weekend. <laughs> Wait, come on, hail, hail me, man. Hail me. <laughs> just yes. A, just a little. Yes. Who's Hit- what is that? Who's what Hitler? Is <laughs> Who's Hitler? That's right. When they're when they're running, I think it's right before the grenade scene when they're running. <laughs> he's like, "We like two human antelopes." <laughs> yeah, that one just had yes. me rolling. And I love the. I think Sam Rockwell's character in this adds so much. He plays Captain Klenzendorf, and he is portrayed as someone who obviously has achieved a high rank, and now he is back leading these Hitler youth groups, which is, you know, an extreme demotion. Lost my eye in Operation Screw-Up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And he's just, like, you can tell from his facial expressions, from his tone of voice, from all of that, how he no longer believes in this war. And he says right in the beginning that the war is almost over and it's kind of ridiculous that we're doing this, but hey, kids, let's all be excited about yeah, it. Yeah, what was the, what was the line? He's like, and although it seems like things are, uh, like we're kind of on the back foot and there is no hope for victory, apparently we're doing very well. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. And his face throughout all of those scenes is just like when he's talking to the kids, it's halfway appropriate. Like he's, half-assedly putting on a show it's a drunk dad trying to get through the uh trying to get through the birthday party at chuck e cheese like it's yes it's very much that kind of dynamic i i haven't been that dad yeah i've heard stories and it's cool because captain k's character which i'm sure we'll talk a bunch about because he's just so damn great um i think represents kind of the german army and what's going on historically with the German military at this point. There's a couple of references to the 20 July plot from 19, from the year prior, 1944, the most famous assassination attempt of Hitler. When Tom Cruise tried to kill him. The Fuhrer is alive. I delivered the bomb myself. I saw the blast. He is dead. <laughs> right. So, of course, if you know uh, the film Valkyrie based on Operation Valkyrie, as it was called, to the conspirators. Um, this is the story of uh, von Stauffenberg, a aristocrat and officer in the German army who'd been injured in the war before, who is part of this plot to kill Hitler. Friendly Fire has a really good episode on this, and I think they talked a lot about the deficiencies of the way that character was portrayed, because they sort of make them like the good Nazis, when really there was plenty of bad about them as well. But the point being that um, Captain K kind of reminds me of Stauffenberg a little bit in the sense that for one, they've both lost an eye. So I was going to say, of, the one eye thing makes it. I mean, yeah, I think they like they didn't put an eye patch on him, which was a good call. Because if they had done that, the parallel would have been like just way too obvious. Um, but I think that you can see they've decided to do different things with their disillusionment with 
the Reich and the German government and Nazism, etc. Um, but they both kind of have given up on that ideal. So a little about me. Who am I and why am I here talking to a bunch of little titty grabbers instead of leading my men into battle towards glorious death? So I think there's a parallel there to be drawn between the characters. And so this puts the film, um, to give you some context, um, probably in the last six months of the war in the beginning of 1945. Uh, Hitler dies on April 30th, 1945 which is referenced in the film. So this is the months coming up before that, or maybe the month before that. Um, it's also, there's a hilarious scene where he, uh, the Hitler character talks about the attempted assassination. And I think he said something like my legs, bomb proof legs, bomb proof legs. That's what he says. <laughs> with the, which with is, the suitcase bomb under the table, but I outsmarted them. Bomb proof legs. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so great because, of course, this briefcase bomb went off behind one of the big, thick table legs, and that's likely what um, what saved Hitler. So, in a sense, it was a bomb-proof leg that <laughs> kind of it saved Hitler. It just wasn't but- his bomb-proof legs. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. man. And I – that's amazing. Just an that's example just of just that stellar writing. But that's but- exactly how, like, a 10-year-old would – or, or if not a 10-year-old, like maybe a little bit younger than 10, sure. would would think in those terms. Oh, yeah. Hitler has superpowers. You can't kill him. I don't know if just like my 10-year-old is just more like jaded and edgy than 10-year-olds in movies. But like I would probably have placed from like JoJo's dialogues with Yorkie, who I love, uh, and, oh, love the, uh, and how – his best friend Hitler manifests himself. Uh, I would have probably placed him at maybe like at eight, but again, maybe it's just kids are more jaded now than they were back in the forties. But I also think he's a little runty, right? He's smaller he and gets picked on and stuff. So I think it makes sense that he's like a smaller 10 year old. Right. And I love that they, so he goes to the Hitler youth camp during their grenade exercises. Jojo ends up getting, seriously injured not so much that he's necessarily kicked out of the hitler youth but enough that he then gets yeah enough that he then gets shunted off to the side because he's looked at as less than and a bit slow because he he got a scarred face so he's not he's not pretty anymore and he has a bit of a limp (laughs) yep (laughs) he's suddenly 4f out of nowhere yep so he goes to work for captain k and i think i thought that was that was really the point when you realize that Captain K is no longer a Nazi because of the relationship between him and Rosie. And him and, and Rosie comes in and is like, you're going to make this happen. I don't want to hear a damn thing about it. And knees him in the balls. Bessler, you're looking fetching as usual. Oh. Okay, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, such a great scene. Yes. You are going to give my son a job. Make him feel special and useful. Yes. We'll take care of him. <laughs> And that's just so well done. And it gives us a, and Jojo is then put even more on the outside because he, you know, being disabled in any way, shape or form, even with like facial scarring or something in Nazi Germany was a big problem for you. So he has to take care of the clones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the clone scene was so great. <laughs> a, a, a reference of course, to the medical experimentation that Nazi Germany did. And, um, just a little behind the scenes on that. They used a real 
set of twins and then use CGI for the ones who probably for the ones who are like turning away and all that. So it's not their actual faces, but they multiplied two twins using CGI to show the like eight kids in that scene that are twins. And then uh rebel Wilson is strapping grenades to them and that like sticking grenades in the back of their pants. Go give that American man a hug. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of uh rebel Wilson or uh Fraulein Rom, I liked her, but I thought that she was the character who took me out of the time period of the film the most. Mm -hmm. There was something modern feeling to her. She's a little anachronistic. Yeah, yeah. There was something modern feeling to her comedic timing, some of it to great effect. Like when she says, oh, I'm got, like I was just cracking up. But it, when she goes, this body has had 18 babies for Germany. And she, yeah, the hand gesture that she does, like, that yes. struck me as, like, kind of modern and connecting it to sort of... It's a, it's a great year to be a woman. <laughs> yes. Like, that struck me as very millennial. Like, that's that's comedy that, like, kids in that generation are going to relate to the most. And so that... I'm not criticizing it, really. It's just, like, if anything pulled me out of scenes a little bit, it was her. But not because of her acting, just kind of the way her mm-hmm. character was written. She's still hilarious, so I like that she's in the film. But. Yeah, the... Uh, you guys have seen Pitch Perfect? Yeah? No? I yeah, haven't. Nay. She, she actually plays a character named Fat Amy in... Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, and she okay. named herself Fat Amy. Like, that's how she introduces herself. What's her name? Fat Amy. Um, you call yourself Fat Amy? Yeah, so twig bitches like you don't do it behind my back. She's just <laughs> known as Fat Amy through the whole series. But like That's it's very epic. You know, I was watching the behind the scenes uh on JoJo Rabbit, and I've also seen her work in in like the pitch perfect movies. And I think she just does an awful lot of ad-libbing on her own. And in this, I think it was just cracking everybody up so much that Taika Waititi was just like, fuck it, leave that in, you know. Uh, and Waititi is very encouraging mm-hmm. of that stuff. But it, it's, like, she so has a distinct style. Yeah, she has a distinct style uh, of, of comedy that is very much her own. So I'm not surprised that it didn't um, – quite mesh with the rest of the script but it still is hilarious to me still a good laugh exactly scarlett johansson in this yeah we finally get to talk about my girlfriend your girlfriend (laughs) so i have my issues with scarlett johansson we're very involved I'm I'm very involved with the idealized version of Scarlett Johansson that only exists in my head. Yeah, that it must because you must not read any news clips about her or any interviews. Oh no, there. Oh no, yeah, I I know, I know. Okay, I know. So, despite my feelings about Scarlett Johansson's personal and and how she chooses to interact with the press, she can be such a fantastic actress. And in this, like Taika Waititi specifically wanted her for this role because he was like, I really think she can bring something to this. And I want to see her do this character. And she's just so great. She's so sympathetic. And she's as a mom myself, I was like, 
Oh, I know your struggle, ma'am. I know your struggle. Where she's dealing with just Jojo when he's obstinate and trying to help him and, and doing the little, okay, we're going out on a mission when they're leaving the house for the first time after he's had his accident with the grenade. And especially the scene where she is um, portraying Jojo's dad oh, and herself. Such a good scene. Like that is because, um, you know. I've been a single mom and I know that frustration where you are just locked and I have a son where you are just locked in this. And so you have to do something. You have to do something to break out of it or you're going to lose your mind or be a bad parent or something. And she just takes that so well and turns the scene around. And it's so believable that it's just, I cried a couple times during this movie the first time I watched it. And this was one of them. And then her, when Jojo finds her hanging in the square is the second one. So you jumped ahead into that scene that I, I want to talk about. But also in the scene where she like plays the role of Jojo's dad, it happened the first time and the second time. I've since gotten used to it. But like the first couple of times I watch it, I like flinch for a second where I'm like, Oh, don't do blackface. <laughs> like yeah, when she she, she gets on. well, she gets the 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 soot from the it's beard face. Not black it is face. beard face, but it's like <laughs> it, like it because there's she gets the soot from the fireplace and wipes it across her uh, across her face and gives herself a beard made of soot. But she's also wearing like if I remember correctly, fairly bright red lipstick. That it. It, I was like, oh man, don't, don't, okay, whew, whew, just a beard. But like, I don't know why, but just like, there's just this flinch that happens in my brain when she does that. I'm like, oh God, don't. And then like, she doesn't, and it's cool. But like, oh, I see what you're doing. I get it now. The reason why I love the scene when his mom dies is Gut punch. my favorite part of the whole movie. It's just great. It's, is the, it's just such a great example of, brilliantly subtle filmmaking and brilliant visual storytelling because uh, without paying any attention to it throughout the movie, he sets up those shoes multiple yeah. times. Uh, there's like, she enters a scene in the, uh, in the, the pool where like he's sitting there and then like she walks up on the bench next to him but you only see her shoes at first. And then when they're dancing and, you know, like they're having the, the conversation about how like she's up on the wall and he's down on the, the sidewalk and she's dancing and you get to see like her feet dance uh, in those shoes. But it's never something that you think is really going to come back to it until he's following this butterfly as he's putting up propaganda posters and he's he's following the butterfly and he looks and he bends down and then he stands up. And when he stands up, the camera comes up with him and these shoes come into frame and they're dangling there. And it's just like you. I I can't even begin to say how much I love that that shot composition. It is so tight. You had no idea those were Chekhov's shoes the whole time. Yeah, totally Chekhov's shoes. I didn't know Chekhov had shoes that nice. <laughs> apparently. Apparently, they're gorgeous. I would love those shoes, right. to be clear. Yeah, and I love that they – I don't know if resisted the urge is the right word because it's obviously they made the right call, but they never pan up. You never see her. The entire shot, even though it changes uh, angles and, and distance, 
is always her, yeah, that her was lower a, body, just her shoes and her legs. That was a purposeful choice that YTT oh, made. Sure. He mentioned it. Mm-hmm. That he he felt that was going too far and that showing the shoes was enough to for the audience to understand what happened. And that's what he was going well, for. Well, and it makes it so intimate. No offense to the families of the other five or six people that are hanging there, but mm-hmm. you don't know those people. They're just a statistic. You don't see them. You see a couple of people hanging. Yeah, it's terrible. But as an audience member, you're right there with Jojo because you're having this intimate moment with these shoes that are like, oh, man, those are mom's shoes. Like, I know those shoes. I know what And they he tries are. to tie them and he fails and it's so sad. Like, that's the that's the kicker right there. Right. Yeah, I remember gasping as I saw the shoes come into focus in the theater and just like, everybody does. Eh, tears. Everybody does. Tears. So here's a question. What it, in that scene, and I think it happens a couple of other times throughout the movie. Um but the as he's like hugging her legs and then like sitting there just crying, um, it cuts to shots of the surrounding houses. But like the roofs of the surrounding houses with the like attic windows in them. Oh yeah, I noticed the, that too. Yeah, like it it makes it look like the houses are watching. And I didn't yes. know if there was an additional implication there, like because that's also the sort of window that he and Elsa look out of at one point. And I didn't know if the implication was that everybody's watching him or that he's being like he's being spied on by the Gestapo or that he is uh, imagining that he feels like he's a bug in a glass, like that everybody's watching. Or if there are people like other Jews hiding in other houses, looking through these same attic windows. Right. And are those their relatives hanging or their family or people who protected them? Um, Or is it Elsa even? I don't know. Uh, That's a good question. I did I did have that impression on the first shot that looks it's kind of a medium shot that shows the roof of the house and the two windows look distinctly like sort of a face and eyes. So I yeah. did get that feeling that these houses are watching, the town is watching, this is a public square, this is a public moment, here is Jojo in a sense being humiliated again, but there is a distinct difference because I would compare this scene a little bit to the rabbit scene. And when he's struggling to kill the rabbit and then fails this test, quote unquote, but not just of the Hitler youth. This is a test of manhood and that age of a kid just fitting in with these other boys. So many, many boys have gone through this throughout history. And in the rabbit scene – you feel his pain because you know he really wants to fit in with those people. In the scene with his mother's shoes, I don't sense that he's thinking at all. Like, he's not understanding why was his mom hung, the repercussions of what that means to him, that he, uh, if he thought about it, he would be considered like a bad Nazi or a bad member of the party because his mom was involved in hiding a Jew. Like none of that's going through his head in that scene. He's just terrified and crying because he's coming to grips with the reality that his mother is gone. And he, and he 
does that switch where he goes to tie her shoes and he starts crying again and he hugs her legs again. So inadvertently, I think that's the moment where he completely lets go of all the propaganda and everything else. And he realizes that that kind of doesn't matter. Sort of, except right after that, he goes to try to kill Elsa because she got his mom killed. But I think he blames Elsa. Yeah. He erroneously blames Elsa, I think. Yeah. I I think it, I feel like I agree with you, but I think it happens at the next scene. So maybe it's the beginning. Yeah. Like I, I think, I think when he goes to stab Elsa and she essentially lets him and like the knife doesn't go in very far because he's weak. Yeah, he fails again. He fails again. He can't do anything right. Yeah. And he like, it's just kind of goes in like maybe a half inch. Um, and God damn, Elsa's made a steal. Like, that girl is tough. Yeah. I think that's when he realizes that the the propaganda and the the ethos that he had been clinging to wasn't going to fix anything either. So, like, you know, hating Elsa or killing Elsa isn't going to bring his mom back and it's not going to make anything better, which I, I feel like that's the breaking point for him. All right. And then shortly thereafter, the Gestapo comes calling. Oh, what a scene. What is both hilarious and- Well, that was before, though, wasn't it? No, the Gestapo comes after his mom, his dad, because that's why they come. Well, it's it's after his mom it's after his mom died, but it's before he knows his mom is dead. Yeah, she's gone. She's been they gone ask, for days. Where is your mother? And oh, he's like, okay. I don't know. So he hasn't found his mother yet. She works a lot. Okay. Like they don't know. They they know that she's in the resistance, so they're coming to toss the house, but they don't know what they're looking for. And it's, I think it's after the scene where he's, yeah, he sees his mom leave the house when he's wearing the little robot uniform or costume. And that's why Captain K comes. That's why Sam Rockwell shows up because- To save the day. Well, to save the day, but also he knows, the reason why he does that is because he knows that Rosie's been killed. Hmm. Like he knows that already. I would guess he knew that something was going on, that either he knew that Rosie was hiding Elsa or he knew that Rosie was deep in it enough that if he didn't come and save Jojo, then there was going to be no Jojo and that Rosie would haunt him for the rest of his days, despite those days being, as we discover, very limited. (laughs) How much does Stephen Merchant just kill that scene? I I love him. Hilarious. He he was involved in writing the original Office with Ricky Gervais, I'm pretty sure. And then he did Hello Ladies on HBO, which is this like cringe fest of this tall, skinny, awkward British guy trying to like hit on women and he just he's just a loser and can't pull it off and it's like yeah it, it's it's pretty funny but yeah definitely cringy but but his style of comedy is I, I think hilarious he really worked on that accent getting that like german accent just right mm-hmm. um i just love just, thinking of him as uh as the the guy from raiders of the lost ark oh <laughs> right the gestapo yes. guy for like it's yes. hilarious if you just like i need that deep fake of Stephen Merchant from Jojo yeah. Rabbit being superimposed into Raiders oh, of the Lost Ark. And he's such a scarecrow at six foot like <laughs> nine or whatever. That would be a terrifying looking character. Yeah, it would. Yeah, like the the one of the peak comedic scenes in there that really highlights the absurdity of what's going on in Germany at the time is when the Gestapo comes calling, and this was accurate, everybody says Heil Hitler to each other. It was a greeting. And so it gets said, 
like 20, 30 times because every every single like person minute, and he yeah. brings like what, like four or five Gestapo people with him. Yeah. So first it, they have to all say it to Jojo and jo- Jojo says it to them. And then Captain K comes and they have to go through it all again. Then Freddie Finkel comes and they have to do it all again. And then Elsa comes downstairs as the sister and they have to go through the whole rigmarole again. It's uh, it, so in. So probably uh, 40 or 50 times. <laughs> well, it's it's what's called a lotsy is a, a a term in in comedy where it's a joke becomes funny because you repeat it and typically yep, it it gets it stops being funny and then you can just keep going and it gets funny again. exactly yeah and it's well uh, to to uh, a lotsy is typically a repetition of a joke three times a good lotsy you can get four out of them and this one was uh of the the fourth time just absolutely killed me but it's also like the fourth one is more poignant because it's elsa right yeah and so you're all terrified so you're like it's it really nicely done yeah when i read that mel brooks like just found the film hilarious and like complimented ytt personally this is the scene i'm thinking about that must have just killed mel brooks because it's just like you could see this in one of his films and this type of absurdist comedy just hiling the boy and hiling yourself and then of course (laughs) hiling freddie finkel (laughs) (laughs) oh it was so i love captain k and freddie finkel's gay relationship like i love that he's rebelling so wholesome oh my god Rebelling against the Gestapo and the and the Third Reich by being gay with Theon Greyjoy, hilarious to me. Like You're right, <laughs> and there and I don't know how much Alfie Allen made the choices that he made and being like super like an effeminate queen and just prissy and just like prancing around and like you know being upset and you know my gaydar is so bad. <laughs> that while I was getting absorbed in like the plot and trying to figure out what's going on, the first few like time and a half I saw this film, I literally remember <laughs> the second time I saw this film, I still found myself pulling myself aside and be like, "Wait, are they gay? I don't know. I don't, is that is that, is a that thing? supposed to be?" No, and I'm I sure that the, in mean, their undershirts, feeding each other strudel. Just like- I know. <laughs> I mean, I. For me, I spotted it immediately well, as a, because as a I'm, normal I'm, person. I'm queer myself, so. Sure. Yeah, like, no, I just, I just, one of those, like, right over my head where, again, I felt like an idiot later. Because on this viewing, I'm like, how did I miss all of this, <laughs> like, pointing to their gay relationship, like, so clearly and the way everything about the way Alfie moves and sits and, like, crosses his legs is just, like, so over the top. And I'm like... Okay, I'm an idiot. I think I didn't quite get it the first time until the scene with the German shepherds. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and he like yells at him. And Another then, like, very like, Mel Brooks scene. And then he's like, I'm sorry. I, did, I, I didn't mean to yell at you like that. And they're like, their faces right. are like real close to each other. But he's like, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to yell at you. <laughs> I was like, oh. Yeah. Being all oh, gentle guys. with him. Yes. And Rockwell just pulls it off so well so well he's such a great nuanced actor i love everything he's in or i love him and everything he does the thing the boots entire entirely decorative Uh, (laughs) but like that that uh well and he has so many like weird little lines that i don't know if we're in there or if he just ad-libbed but he talked about like his imaginary friend who used to 
who sneak who used to come in and pee in his bed and get him in so much trouble when he was little. And I was like, <laughs> that's so funny. And it was like completely thrown away. That was a good like one, yeah. The 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 feathers on the hat for aerodynamics and the boots. Aerodynamics. Purely, <laughs> purely decorative. Yes, I love that scene. How he's like, fuck it, I'm going out fast. Well, I know I have to like, go out anyway. I know, it's just like he's like, you know what? I'm gonna live my truth in my last moments. And then he shows up in it and it's fabulous and I love it. I know it's the fact that in the film they go from like sketch design with color like process to obviously a sartorial montage that we were spared where he's actually making this thing from scratch and making this like fuchsia <laughs> cape and then putting it all yes. together for this final fight and scene. he puts on the eyeliner because he's got like that yes. thick eye makeup on oh and my he's god still like firing a submachine gun in that scene yeah, again exactly like, while out Al- while yep. alfie allen is like playing a, a fucking edison gramophone off of his hip <laughs> like it's just a like shotgun. his musical backup <laughs> here are they playing wagner <laughs> probably probably what else are you gonna do and then we get to see yeah i mean wagner is a perfect thing to play at that point um and we get to see sam rockwell like push jojo away mm-hmm. oh and yeah, save his life oh, that's the best and he's like so nice to him, and then just like all of a sudden he's just like, just get, get away, away Jupa. Like I'll, I'll rewind just a second since we're covering Sam Rockwell being this protector and obviously really trying to shield JoJo from harm. I will say that the one thing that I thought was just like one card to show too many was going back to the scene where the Gestapo patrol is in the house. And they ask Elsa for her identification, which, of course, she's struggling to even find it, which is suspicious in the first place. And then, of course, Captain K walks in to take over because Mm -hmm. at first, you know, you kind of watch and you're like, why is he being such a hard ass? And then you realize that he wants to be the one to hold those papers. And so I went back and paused the screen because I wanted to make sure. But at least on this viewing, I realized that she was not going to have the date of birth memorized of his sister. And so she was going to get it wrong and that he was going to play, like she said, the right date of birth and just, and of course that's what happens. Mm -hmm. She says the first of May. And I think the passport says like 7th of January or something like that. But regardless, uh, I noticed that. And then they make a point to Jojo kind of gives that exposition to the audience and talking to her where he says, you got the date of birth wrong and, you know, he protected you. So that's when he kind of acknowledged that Kay was on their side. I, I thought that was handing over a little too much. But then again, I, I mean, I guess it, it is legitimate that his character would discover that. Well, I, I think that she, was- yeah, he, he realized it, but she's actually the one who pointed out that she got it wrong. Um, You're right. You know, much like. Because she knows the risk. Yeah. Well, she, and she looks at it and she's like. She's like, oh, oh, no. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Oh, I fucked that up. Uh, but she, she's like, I, I got the date wrong. And he was like, but why he's helping us? Like, I thought it was, it was pretty nicely done. Uh, kind of like how, uh, in all fairness, I was the first person to realize that I had said, uh, father knows best instead of my three sons in arcane mutiny episode 
the TV show that Fred McMurray was on. I knew that and I heard it and I texted you guys and I was like, oh no, I fucked that up. He did, folks. And then you're like, nobody's going to notice. I don't have any recollection of these events. Nobody's, (laughs) nobody's going to notice. It's fine. And I'm like, somebody will notice. And lo and behold, lo and behold, we heard about it. To be clear, I said my mom was going to notice if she listened to the episode. This is true. Because my mom loves Fred McMurray. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot to hit on here. And uh, I want to throw out a thank you to um, Richard, Dennis, and Mike for doing the research for this episode. They have a lot of great stuff on um, some of the history of the Hitler Youth, as well as the state of the German military in this part of the war. Of course, we don't have enough time to get all that information in here, but you can look that up on our surplus ordinance when I put that out. It'll come out a couple of days after you're hearing this episode. Um, so thanks, guys, for helping us out with the research. One thing that I wanted to make sure we got a chance to talk about was the music. How good is this soundtrack? So good. So good. And not even just the soundtrack, like the score. Like all of the music in this is so well done. And the composer for this, Michael Giacchino, he is um, an Academy Award winner, has done God, a lot. so, so, so many. Mm-hmm. Everything from Marvel films to indie movies. I was going to say, didn't he Didn't he do a – is he the one who did the, the music for The Incredibles or am I making that up? I believe so. He's done a lot of Disney. His most recent big ones were Spider-Man Far From Home, did a bunch with Pixar. Um, yeah, super brilliant. And Star Wars, like all of that stuff. He's in, Besides John Williams. They do have other – composers for star wars folks something i learned today i think he did rogue one that's the one he did and he did something for star trek as well so he's he's an equal opportunity um nerd anyway but he like there are two albums you got to get with this and it's both the score and the soundtrack and that for me is becoming so rare unless you're talking about like edgar wright james gunn yeah, yeah, those two. Those two are the ones where it's like, I need to get the soundtrack and the score. Yeah, there were a lot of moments in this that uh, the the editing, I don't know if, if Edgar Wright and Taika Waititi share an editor, but there were some very, especially when he's getting ready in front of the mirror in the beginning, uh, those kind of quick cuts are very Edgar Wright. Uh, you see a lot of that in the um, the Three Flavors Coronetto trilogy, like the Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and the like, where um, that's how he does a lot of his transitions. But it was it, I, I like that style. Um, yeah. Shout out to uh, Tom Eagles, who's the editor, and he did edit Hunt for the Wilder People as well as What We Do in the Shadows. So it's mm. definitely someone YTT's used to working with. So he must you know understand his style well. Ash versus Evil Dead for those who are Very nice. Evil Dead fans. So, so he's probably a New Zealand guy because uh, Sam Raimi is. So, it, like all the pieces in this work so well together, and I think from the very beginning, you know, the film opens with a Beatles track, and throughout it, we see Beatles in know, German. Rather, we yes, we hear you know David Bowie, so good Tom Waits. Yes. Oh, Which is funny because – I love me some Tom Waits. Again, uh, back to a little bit of my, my Scarlett Johansson obsession. I actually bought her album 
She has she has an she album? has a couple now, but her first one, like she did one with uh, Pete Yorn, um, and uh, I think she might have another one after that. But her first album uh, was not typical of what you'd think of as like a, a Hollywood starlet producing a, a, her own album. It really had no market value whatsoever. It was Scarlett Johansson doing an album of Tom Waits covers. Holy shit. It's That's amazing. Amazing. And it's oh, like, interesting. I, I don't even, you know, I, I have a friend who's a big Tom Waits fan. And I was like, listen to this and tell me what you think. And he goes, he listens to it and he's like, you know what? I fucking hate this. <laughs> But I think Tom Waits really loves it. So I was like, okay, good. Because, like, my problem with Tom Waits is always that I feel like he sounds like if Goofy from Disney were a homeless meth head who had just gargled hot asphalt. Like, that's what his voice sounds like to me. Y'all should see my face right now. It is not. I know. Oh, it looks kind of happy. You're smiling, but it's got a, a glint of murder no, in your eye. It's rage smile. <laughs> rage smile. Rage smile. She really does. Yes, I do. It's because she's from Minnesota. Katie has resting nice face. It's, that's so very true. When, even when she's angry with Liam, she just kind of seems. <laughs> oh, you betcha. <laughs> Liam loves it when I do the Minnesota accent, folks. That's <laughs> oh, so funny. But yeah, so I that's uh, I don't know if that was just like an odd overlap that uh, she actually has a version of this song on her album. I wanted to throw in a musical Easter egg, and I'm not going to reveal the answer to this riddle. So I'll we'll we'll reveal this at the end of the next episode. So I'll give the listeners a chance to try and figure this out. But if you listen to the track that is playing. Um, when they are when she when Rosie invites Jojo to dance with her in the kitchen and she like pulls up the chair. I, I believe it's in the scene. Either way, it's when they're around the kitchen table. There's a track called Taboo by the Laquona Cuban boys, and it's an old track from the f- I forget if it's an- an- anachronistic for the time setting of the film, but it's around the 30s or 40s. And um yeah, it's an old school Cuban track. Era. And when I heard it, I instantly got reminded of a track that I realized must have, um, it didn't sample it, but it's a direct influence from a piece of this chorus that's in this song. And I'll give you guys a hint. It is a... 1994 American film that uses a totally different version of this song, but if you're careful, you'll recognize kind of the hook. And I want to see if anybody gets it, but I'll reveal it in the next episode. Again, I have to repeat it because we haven't talked about him enough, and I love him. Uh, the kid who plays Yorkie is like just an absolute delight. He is and a breath so of British. British. So British. He's so cute. So hysterically British. Um, but also, I think the casting of Jojo was actually brilliant. Not only because... Yorkie is Archie Yates. Archie Yates, yes. That so kid British. is 
Man, I hope his his life is just a, a sheet cake made of like puppy snuggles. I don't know. Like, right. I just want all good things to happen to him. I hope he gets knighted someday. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Sir Yorkie. Uh, <laughs> Sir Yorkie. <laughs> remind me, Jojo, the the actor's name who plays Jojo is Ro- Rowan. Uh, Griffin. Roman Griffin Davis. Roman, is Roman Jojo. Griffin Davis. Um, not only is he great and he's delightful uh, and he's very sympathetic and it's it's really easy to be on jojo's side and you want him to come to the to the right conclusions um but also what i noticed is and i didn't notice it until the very last scene when they're standing outside the door that kid looks like scarlett johansson as a little boy Mm. Mm. Like it's exactly like Scarlett Johansson, like has the same looks and like, I don't know if he's doing that on purpose, but he mimics like her, like her head tilts and her facial expressions really, really well. It's a little creepy, but in a good way. I did often find myself thinking, damn, this kid's a good actor. And granted, you know, I'm sure in these types of movies, they they audition, you know, a thousand 10 year olds uh, or whatever. But I just remember, you know, third time around paying attention to some of the, what specifically is blocking? Blocking Blocking is what, like how you move the, the actors around in a scene. Right. So that you can, you know, where to put the camera or, you know, what to do on the stage. So like, you'll, you'll say, okay, you move from, from the chair here, over to the bed, and then you turn this way, and that's blocking. So when you put tape on the floor to mark spots, that's part of blocking. And so, that, yes. so I'm assuming that includes that's going to be how you light the scene as well, because you know where someone's face is going to be and where the light needs to hit them. You block. Typically, of- you'll block it, and then you'll light to the blocking rather than the other way around. But at least in theater, that's how that goes. There's times where, and this isn't me getting pulled out of something, it's just watching enough behind the scenes stuff. It's like when you watch a conversation between two characters and you think about the two cameras that are being used. And when you think about it hard enough, you realize like, oh, this previous shot would have this next camera in it. So it obviously wasn't filmed simultaneously. And you realize that this two-way conversation is having to be rehearsed and recorded with someone off screen repeating the lines and the one character doing all of their dialogue and then vice versa. And then it's all edited together. So, you know, occasionally if you let yourself go, you'll think about how a film was shot. And I remember looking at the scene uh, where Jojo is running away after at the end where captain k has kind of kicked him out of there and taken his military coat off and he's running and like artillery rounds are starting to hit the town and he turns around and there's an explosion pretty close behind him and then he turns back and runs down the street and i just kept thinking about all the equipment and all the cameras and everything that was going to be around him and how he's so immersed in his craft and how he's really selling that scene and the running and all of that and i was like man that's a lot to do for a 10 year old there's just no point where you catch him looking at the camera or anything like that and again obviously this is a big budget professional production so you would expect that or maybe there are bad takes where he did that and they cut it out but in the end the the end result is just for a 10 year old i thought was so good i don't know maybe i'm not saying anything worth no yeah but i just definitely want to commend his acting 
Yeah. Finding a child actor that can do stuff like that is they interview thousands of children for these kinds of roles specifically because of that. Because child actors, I mean, not to say they're all bad. Yeah. And it's hard for kids to immerse themselves like that. Whereas, and some kids are just really, really capable of doing that. And he is one of them, like whether it's because of the circumstances of the film or his own talents or a combination of both, like he gives an amazing performance in this and is the film would not work without that perform that kind of performance. Yeah, definitely. I think he's, he's the right star for the right reasons. Um, I also wanted to just throw in how well the script draws a parallel between the character arcs and what's going on in Germany and the end of the war. Um, you know, I think seeing this sort of late war Germany stage where the propaganda these people would have been getting is kind of fight to the death. Like, victory is still possible. Defeat will be even worse. We'll all become enslaved by either the Russians or the Americans. They're all going to fuck so our dogs. Better. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, eat our babies. So it, it was going to be better to die fighting than to live in a defeated Germany. And, and you see this attitude um, in totally different ways from Rebel Wilson's character, like literally making suicide clone bombers. <laughs> to- Go give that American man a hug. Oh God! I- <laughs> yeah, I guess clone clone suicide bombers would be the correct way to say that. Um, to of course the hilarious scene of Sam Rockwell in all his purely decorative glory <laughs> as he goes out with the submachine gun. Live Just- your truth. Yes, I yep. loved it. I well, loved and that. also it's interesting because like how many times and now I, I might be getting this this uh, I might be saying the wrong German phrase here, but it was the the Volkssturm. Where they basically said, hey, old old men, women, and children, like, just grab a gun and go get them. Like, you don't often see that depicted in a World War II movie. It's one of those things that you hear about, but you but you seldom see. And so I was kind of like, ooh, the Volkster. That looks horrible. <laughs> yeah. So we always ask our two questions at the end of our show, whether or not the film succeeds at what it's trying to do. And did we like it? Personally, for me, I've already outed myself as a huge YTT fan. And for me, this film hits every beat that it's intending to. Like, it moves me when I'm watching it. This and maybe Mad Max Fury Road, which is my favorite movie of all time, um, is one of those where when it's on... I just have to watch it and just enjoy it because it's just so engrossing and the acting, the story, the script, the music, all of it works together so well to tell this tale of that's complicated, that's sad, that's funny. And it just explores so many different avenues. And for me, all of YTT's decisions work really well. We talked about some of the reasons why for some folks it didn't work. But for me, every single one of those things does work. And like I said at the top, I love this movie. It's not my favorite YTT. It's probably number three on my list. But 
it's so fantastic. And it's definitely one of those that I try to show to people because I think it talks about World War II in a different way. And I think he succeeded so well at telling a different style of story and st- and being comedic while still having these moments like the scene where his mom dies and he discovers there where like everything before that or well, the scenes directly before that are all funny and you're laughing and it's great. And Jojo's having a great day. And then he finds his mom's body and it's just a punch to the gut and that YGT was able to pull it off as well as he did is so impressive. And this is something that like I watch pretty regularly, like once every six months or so since it's come out. So I loved it. And it's, I think even if you're on the edge of it, give it a chance. (laughs) I have to say, yeah, I, I'm pretty much there. The only place where I think the, where the movie falls down a little bit, as much as I hate to say it, is one aspect of Taika Waititi's performance as Hitler is I never buy the transition into evil Hitler or angry Hitler. Yeah. Like the, the transition where he's going from, uh, it it just is something about it rings a little too false for me. See, but okay. I hate to step on your opinion, but let me just ask you a question to maybe reframe it and just see if this makes sense to you. Because the way I saw that is in the same way that YT, this is just my own personal opinion in the same way that YTT wrote off doing research for Hitler because he was like, fuck that guy. He doesn't deserve research to be done. I'll play him however the hell I want, which is a great Mm -hmm. statement and a really cool move from a creative perspective, even right. Aside from the general fuck Hitler sentiment that all of us can get behind. Not a controversial statement. Right. But I think that the feeling you're getting about not fully buying his anger and sort of ranting Hitler, I think is working towards Waititi's advantage because he's trying to sell it as this guy's just a drama queen. Like he's just being overly dramatic. Like, and I, so to me, it is like, it's the same writing off as, of Hitler as a ridiculous, psychotic, and broken person. Not to write off the evils that he did, because obviously that that's a fact. Right. And you don't want to turn Hitler into a cartoon character. But I think in this case, the idea is to show that he can – not only those rants and that anger is kind of meaningless because it's just over, it's just him being overly dramatic, but he comes out of it in like a second. No, absolutely. Goes, you know, wouldn't that be nice or whatever? Like that transition, I think, is shown to ridicule. I think it's trying to ridicule how seriously Hitler took himself. I think that's part of it. That is up to you to decide if you want to be remembered or disappear without a trace. Like a pitiful grain of sand into a desert of insignificance. What What do you think? I, I disagree with that read on the intention. Um, okay. This what I got from it was it was taking a taking a moment to to acknowledge how dangerous and hate fueled and angry this messaging was. And like to to sort of like show the teeth 
that were actually that were actually there um but it never quite made it it was almost like the 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 teeth were like those wax fangs that you got when you were like a kid in the 80s uh but it it just didn't quite get there uh and i feel like it probably would have had a little bit of a better punch if it had yeah that's 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 interesting i i think that we are seeing the same thing on screen but just interpreting the intent the intention. of that approach in different ways, which is totally because I mean, like it changes the the even the camera angle changes a little bit to be almost like I don't know if it's more from JoJo's perspective, but the camera is a little bit more down and pointing up so that he's looming more uh, than he does in any of the other shots, which makes me feel like that's the feeling that they were going for. At least that's what the camera angle was telling me. Um, but the performance just didn't quite get there, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, but I love the movie and that's about the, that, and is the other thing that I, I hate to say the, the fuck off Hitler, uh, and he kicks him out, out of the, the wall. Uh, oh, that was so great at the window, out the window, but like, I, but he like shatters the window, right? Like he kicks him through mm-hmm. it. Um, I know I wanted to love it, but it felt a little bit forced to me. Like it didn't feel organic, um, but I accept it. The, and this is more, so I loved it by and large. Everything worked for me. I think this movie was a success more importantly though. And uh, perhaps I'm a bad parent but I'm a little permissive sometimes in what my children watch. And this was one that I was like, no, they're young, but I think that they would like this movie and get something out of it. Uh, And there is a, it was a bit of a risk because this sort of puts to the test, at least in my mind, the theory as to did they make Jojo too sympathetic? You know, when my when my kids watched it, they were very much on Jojo's journey with him. Uh, you know, they we we talk a lot about current events and uh, how Nazis are bad and history. We have like our dinner table discussions are insane sometimes, but watching them kind of like, oh, that looks like fun. He gets to throw grenades. What's going on? You know? And then it's like, wait, is he going to kill that rabbit? Dad, is he going to kill that rabbit? And like the, you know, there were parts of it where they were like legit scared and, you know, watching them go through it. I I think the movie more importantly than it working for me, I think it worked for them. Uh, And I think they got everything out of it that Taika Waititi would have wanted a kid to get out of it. It's interesting to consider the subjective perspective of a modern child's seeing this film as well. Now, I know from you talking about your older son and from things you're saying now that your kids are not unfamiliar with who Hitler was. However, whether it's okay to show this film to a kid in general and whether it's okay for this to be a child's first introduction to Hitler – are two very different questions. And so I think, and I'm not a parent, but if I were, that's the one thing I would consider 
is, again, obviously your kids, or at least your eldest kid, has already been exposed to Hitler. So he can, through his own lens, he can see this as a caricature. But if you were a child who doesn't know anything about Hitler, then it's kind of like, eh, you might need Mm -hmm. some context here. You don't have the life experience and the knowledge of history to understand what perspective this character is being shown from. So, that's that's an interesting point of view, considering that you have a child kind of telling this story – but you also have adults and children in the audience because there's nothing gory or violent about this film, at least not up front. Yeah, no, nothing too there's bad. There's serious themes, but it's probably PG-13. It I imagine it's not rated R. So. Yeah, it's PG-13. It's uh, – so, well, that's a, that's actually – I know we're, we're trying to wrap things up, but that's a really interesting question. Do you remember what your cinematic introduction to Hitler was? Like who was your first movie, Hitler? I know what mine was. Mine was uh, the the Hitler cameo in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when he gets him to autograph his book. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, in terms of an actual Hollywood film, that might be my first as yeah, well. Yeah, that was probably my I first was- Hitler. But I was thinking more likely that I'd watch some World War II docs with my dad when I was young, and probably I got some kind of load of Hitler through that, and with my dad explaining who the Nazis were or the history or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, in terms of film depictions of Hitler, um, yeah, I don't know. That's that's probably as good a guess as yeah. It was. I mean, my introduction to Nazis were these were people to be melted by the power of God and to be shot whenever possible, like. right i think maybe i would have seen that at that point but for me the biggest memory i have of being introduced to hitler um so i was homeschooled up until i went to high school my mom was very into showing films to kind of describe what happened in the past and one of the films i watched when i was eight nine maybe was mein kampf which is a it, it is not a support of it it's not like it's a adaptation of Hitler's book it is Wait there's a film these, called Mein Kampf? Yeah. I did not know. Yeah, that. and it is it is a this is what happened because of his propaganda. But documentary so or dramatization? It's a documentary. Okay, okay. It gives um it shows Hitler giving speeches, it shows horrific scenes from concentration camps because the Nazis were all about filming all of their atrocities. So the vast majority of it is made up of both narration and actual film from the Germans at the time. Everything from, like I said, speeches to the camps. So just real quick, sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to throw one little tidbit of history in the research that makes sense to throw in right here. One thing I never thought about is that, um, and we don't have time to get into a whole discussion of like, how much did the average German know about what was going on in concentration camps? But for a more specific microcosm of that, um, some of our research talks about how uh, photography, for the most part, was still sent – like the negatives were still sent to labs to develop. And so, while some of it may have been kept secret, there's still a certain number of lab workers who were civilians – who would have been aware of what was going on with the Holocaust because of that, which is a, which is a, when you mentioned film and photos of the Holocaust is a whole other aspect of that, that I just had never even thought of. If we get around to watching uh, 
the fantastic uh, film Judgment at Nuremberg. Ooh, I've never, oh, I want to see that. It's, it gets into that debate a lot. A lot, Interesting. a lot. Yeah, I'm very interested in I actually uh, directed that, a, sure. a stage adaptation of it um, a few years, but it was actually in uh, 2016 um, that, uh, that, yeah, it was really, really good piece, but. Yeah, so my introduction to Hitler was very extreme, and, like, I would never show that to my own son, um, but it was also very educational. I understood what was going on because of those, because of that, and it's lived with me the rest of my life. I've seen many, many documentaries and things since then, but I think, and, and as someone who, like, my son loves Taika Waititi, one of his first big movies that we saw was Hunt for the Wilder People in Theaters, and... This is one that I've been meaning to show him. We just haven't gotten around to sit down and watch it. But he's 13. So he and he has we are very politically open and we talk a lot about current events, just like you, Liam, with him. And, you know, he knows what's going on. Um, and I think this is a film that if your kid has an understanding of the time period, you can watch it with them and they can get a very, a more personalized, like what it was to be that person, which one of the reasons why TT made this was because he saw extremism rising. And again, this was started in 2010. He saw extremism rising and he wanted to speak out against it. And this film is so good at showing how, seductive those ideas can be for people who don't know any better and so it's a really great opportunity to show to your kids and talk about that about like well why do you think jojo thought these things because they're crazy ridiculous like the jews having snake tongues and mm -hmm. all that nonsense and it's a really good opportunity to have those discussions and then lead them into however you view current politics if you want to go there. But even just as an exploration of history of showing that even just everyday people can be pulled into extremist ideals and be engaging in terrible, terrible behavior and supporting horrific regimes because of propaganda, because uh, you know, the populace just goes along with it. And this film really highlights that, I think, be, by portraying everything coming from Jojo's perspective. Yeah, some somewhere in there, the banality of evil comes in where it's yes. just like, oh, it's part of the culture, it's part of the routine. And, and, and enough things are hidden from you that you don't think about it. But so I, I've, I've started to notice that I'm becoming the yes man on this podcast. Well, maybe Katie too. I think Liam's the only person who has like officially come in with uh, either I didn't like this film or at least I don't think it accomplished what it meant to accomplish. And I don't know. So far, I've really loved what you guys have picked. I've yet to pick a film, by the way. Um, it's been you guys are, which is totally fine. Honestly, the films were so good and I was busy editing and doing other stuff that like I was fine. So I'll pick one eventually. But so far, I've really enjoyed just kind of being led down this path of whatever film is getting chosen. Um, so. Obviously, it's no secret. I was a big fan of this film. Uh, even though I was slow on the uptake and it took me two and a half viewings to really absorb some of these things, let me give it a couple of minor criticisms that I didn't get a chance to mention just because nothing is perfect. Um, 
I thought the choice to do the color saturation the way they did and the color for outfits was really cool. Um, that was a specific choice why TT made because he was like, oh, actually, Germany was pretty fashionable and it wasn't all this like gray and brown drab. So he's like, I want to show that in the costumes. Um, some more fabulous than others, of course. But also <laughs> purely decorative. Purely decorative. <laughs> Uh, that's going to become like a, a catchphrase around here is purely decorative. Purely decorative. <laughs> purely the decorative. Boots, purely decorative. Yeah. Maybe we can find some, some like, uh, if we, if we get some merch going, what we should do is, you know, all the like, uh, Steelers Super Bowl winners of like the Super Bowl, they ended up losing, right? But they already make all the gear and then they just sell it in Africa and India because they don't know the difference and they can't follow the sport. We've only lost like two. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> We should get a hold of some of that stuff and make that our merch. And so we'll, we can like sell people the like Steelers <laughs> Super Bowl winners from a Super Bowl that they didn't actually win. I think they win. donate all that stuff to like kids in Africa. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, they do. Right. So we can support some of those kids by buying it off of them and then turning <laughs> it into our merch. It's like a Steelers Super Bowl win hat. It's purely decorative. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, one thing that's so there was a moment where uh, you see the butterflies in JoJo's stomach, and they actually show you a, a, a screen of butterflies. And I was like, "Oh, he's going all Wes Anderson on I me!" Love it. And I remember the first. So the first time I, I was too. like, "Oh, is this going to just go hard in that direction?" But it didn't. And so I actually appreciate the sort of whether that's magical realism or whatever you want to call it. But I appreciate that moment of levity because it's really the only one. Maybe I guess one could argue. I mean, Hitler's character in general, which is imaginary, but also him eating the unicorn head, which is fucking hilarious. <laughs> but while I appreciate the look and the decisions they made, uh, one minor thing I could say is when the Americans come into town, and they had at least, I think there's at least one real vintage Sherman tank, or at least a model that they built to scale, as opposed to refurbishing some other tank and making it look like a Sherman, which is commonly done. But those props of the Jeeps and the tanks were super clean. Like those things got brought in on a flatbed and they didn't even bother to like splash some mud around the, um, around the treads. So that I got to give them a small hit on props to be like, come on, where's the art department or the prop department on this one? They really should have dirtied these things up. All the Americans come in kind of clean. Like they haven't just been fighting a war and conquering Germany. Anyways, super minor gripe overall. Um, even though I was slow on the uptake, I really love the direction YTT went with this. And again, I think you have to be a little bit, it's not quite Borat brave in terms of what you're risking, but it's still controversial to do Hitler in this light. And I think trying to minimize Nazism through comedy while not turning it into a cartoon and not disrespecting the memory of people who were, you know, violently killed by the regime is a very fine line to walk. And I think they did it really well. So props to the team. I love this film. I'm looking forward to watching it again. And I was really happy that it made our audience poll. So thanks a lot to the audience for participating in the poll. And again, this was episode six, six, but we will be doing this on episode 10, episode 15. It'll be every five after that. 
So, folks, if you would like to interact more with the Danger Close group, you can find us if you search Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. Uh, we have lots of great folks in the group, and there's lots of fun discussions. You can also find us on all the other socials, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit. And so come hang out and tell us all about what kind of war movies you want to see, and we'll be happy to take your uh, suggestions. Don't spam our 8chan page. So, Liam, what's our next film going to be? Our next film is going to be 1987's Empire of the Sun, directed by Steven Spielberg uh, and starring John Malkovich and making his debut a very young, uh, like, I think eight years old, maybe? Christian Bale. Is this an introducing credit? I think this might be that good credit. <laughs> <laughs> I love John Malkovich. I'm always excited to see John Malkovich in something else. Oh, and he's he's great in this mm-hmm. movie. He's great uh, in I'm everything. excited for you guys to watch it. All right. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, we're going to add one post-show segment now because since we're starting to collect – uh, a number of episodes where we are completely wrong about certain things, which I admitted from the beginning was going to happen. We're going to start an after action report uh, post and show music so that if you want to stick around and hear us apologize profusely and admit where we went wrong, uh, thanks to corrections that we get from listeners uh, on our Facebook group, etc. Stick around for that. Otherwise, we will see you on the next episode. I really need you to start dropping in a if there's a there's a, a sound clip that I need you to grab and I need you to start dunking on yourself a little bit. Sure. That every time you pronounce something in perfect Italian, I need the sound clip from a Christmas story where you goes fragile. It must be Italian. <laughs> might do that or i might just do the italian national anthem in full it'll be one of those one of those two <laughs> must be italian uh, let's must see. be italian <laughs> must be must be italian no that's a good one that's a good one thanks for bringing that up fragile by the way i don't did i mention to you who my favorite author is of all time ever period with an exclamation is it, point yeah is it yeah him? you have it's um um Italo Calvino? Uh, Umberto Eco. Umberto Eco. I've never been able to get into his stuff, but I've always tried. I fucking love his stuff. It's great. Okay, so this is our first after-action report in which we mostly talk about what we did poorly. And for our first very Navy-centric episode, which was the Kane Mutiny, um, we all messed up plenty of things, especially me on the military side. So our listener, Michael, wrote in and had a few things to say about what we got wrong in the K-Mutiny. And he wasn't the only one to bring these things up, but he wrote it up in a nice little concise list of five things. First off, a brig is not a prison ship. That was my bad. It's a two-masted square-rigged ship from the age of sail. In the Navy, the brig is a jail, particularly on a ship. But in this particular case, when they're mentioning uh, the mutiny on the Summers, I think it was, that brig was just the name of that type of ship. It was not a jail. Um, Second, 
Ensign Keith was a 90-day wonder, otherwise known as a college graduate that enrolled in midshipman school and graduated 90 days later with the gold stripe of Ensign. Third, and I tried to correct my pronunciation on this, but I still didn't get it right. Uh, what is spelled as Boatswain, as in a Boatswain's mate, is not... Is it Boson? It's not pronounced like that at all. I think I said Boatswain or something. It's Boson. So that's a Boson's mate. Just so you know. Uh, fourth, the colored jerseys you see on the carrier are reserved for air department crew, not deck department. Either way, the colored shirts are the personnel that deals with the catapults and running the aircraft off the carrier. Fifth, the running around on the carrier and getting into formation was not a drill, it was a muster. Basically, it's a roll call, and the groups they were forming into were the separate divisions they are assigned to. Ships are broken up into departments, engineering department, air department, etc. And the departments are broken up into divisions, E-division, MP division, V1 division, etc. I'm assuming E is electrical. And lastly, and this one's for Liam, special delivery, Fred McMurray wasn't in Father Knows Best. He was in My Three Sons. And of course, Liam's already admitted that. He thought he was going to get away with it, but he didn't. I did not <laughs> think I was going to get away. You guys told me I'd get away with it. And I wasn't wrong. I was belatedly correct. I ah. was right. I was just late with it. Right. But yeah. yes. Okay, Culpa, Whatever you got to tell yourself. I, you heard it here first. I acknowledge. I agree with you. The thing that I said the first time was wrong. When I said it the second time, we just weren't recording anymore. The episode was already out there. Right. So anyways, at least one of us can apologize <laughs> and admit when we're wrong and one of us cannot. And uh, Katie wasn't involved in really any of that. So good for Katie. Because Katie is infallible. Uh, Shh. Hell no. I'm the one who made the horrific mistake about when the, the Marines were formed. She did try and pretend that the Marine Corps was formed in like 1990 or something. And I was like, Which oh, I did not boy. pretend. <laughs> I literally didn't know. Right after Space Force, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll take my mea culpa as well. We all make mistakes and we're glad you guys are willing to suffer through them to hear us talk about our crazy nonsense. 